Well, I trust this morning and we've got folks here in this room. We've got uh, folks, I imagine, who are online as well. And we still have another crew that will be joining us later after the Seahawks finish their game. We welcome them all. And I hope the Seahawks win. Friends, as we gather around this text this, this morning, uh, particularly that parable, I was thinking all week of a line that one of my daughters says uh, quite often. Uh, it's the youngest daughter, so it's, it's not in a, in a large uh, speech kind of thing. Uh, she oftentimes will throw her hands out and go, what happened? And this is one of those what happened texts. You read the parable and you're like, what happened? And so if you're having that feeling, maybe hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a better idea of what's going on there. If you've ever attended a Christian memorial service or a funeral, chances are you've heard Revelation 21 or some part of it, and possibly verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Have you heard that one? It's a comforting text. And particularly in a season when a lot of tears will be shed. To know that a day is coming when God will wipe those tears away. When those who mourn, as Jesus said, will be comforted. But the idea here is not original to the New Testament. That wiping of these eyes, taking away those tears, draws on a much earlier prophecy. One that we've already heard this morning. It comes from Isaiah. In verse 8 in our text this morning, when God will wipe away the tears from all the faces. And what a day that will be. But the idea of this coming day isn't limited to scripture. It's not just rooted just here only. Artists and musicians have also found inspiration in this theme. Locating the idea with a future time that is hoped and longed for. Those longings are captured by at least two musicians in our own age. Uh, who have written songs under the title, One Day. American reggae singer, Matish Yahu. Do you know Matish Yahu? I love Matish Yahu. Man, I love his stuff. You need to go listen to Matish Yahu. Get yourself out to YouTube and get yourself some Matish Yahu. You'll be glad you did. His song, One Day, from 2009, longs for that day when hostilities will cease. And what a word that is for us in our own day, uh, particularly... Uh, today but he sings all my life I've been waiting for I've been praying for for the people to say that we don't want to fight no more there'll be no more wars and our children will play one day like I said current day events and frankly everyday events might find many echoing that refrain in another use of one day Iranian Swedish pop singer Arish do you know Arish there's somebody who knows Erish here? I did not know Erish. I knew Modest Yahoo. When I set out, I started writing, I go, one day. That's, that's easy. I typed in one day, and all of a sudden, Erish shows up. I have not stopped listening to this tune all week long. It features another artist, a Swedish pop star named Helena. In their 2014 titled One Day, they long to be reunited with someone they love. And we hear in those lyrics afterlife imagery to express this separation and what is hoped for. One day I'm going to fly away. One day when heaven calls my name. It goes on, one day I'm going to fly away. One day I'll see your eyes again. Again, get yourself out to YouTube and get yourself a listen. It's good stuff. If you have known the kind of painful separation 
to see your eyes again may resonate with your own ardent longings. It's why songs like these are so loved, why so many people hear these and they resonate with them. One day speaks to our own situation. It speaks to deep hopes amidst the troubles of our own lives and our own day. And we hear these longings in song, but they also reside somewhere deeper in our hearts. And God's not unaware of our situation. God's not unaware of our situation, of our heart's longings here. And God is not unconcerned either. We know as much from our first reading this morning, that reading drawn from Isaiah's prophecy. It's set within what's called an apocalyptic section, uh, reaching all the way back to chapter 21 in Isaiah, all the way through chapter 27. And before you get too excited when you hear the word apocalyptic, all right, don't get too excited here with this. And right now, imagining impending destruction and doom, plague and pestilence, all great Hollywood stuff. Hold in mind here the wider aim of apocalyptic literature. It wasn't designed to inspire Hollywood special effects, but rather to speak to what the future holds, and more specifically to draw focus upon what God is up to. When it does, it breeds hopeful confidence for a beleaguered bunch. And that's where it really speaks into these places. But before one gets there, that is that new destination we're headed, there are some steps along the way. And in the Isaiah text, we hear some of those steps. Heap and ruin in the first part of verse 2. A city no more in that second part of verse 2. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. That's verse 3. And the song of the ruthless will be stilled. That's verse 5. That's all that process that's taking from the old and moving to the new. It's filling out those steps. And the hallmark of apocalyptic literature is this notion of replacement. Again, the old becoming new. In fact, if you read Revelation 21, we read verse 4. If you read verse 5, the verse that comes right after the drying of tears, that's where Jesus says, I come to make all things new. And so again, it's a hallmark of apocalyptic literature. Here the language marks God's ultimate victory. But that victory doesn't end with cosmos in ruin. It doesn't end with just desolation or what we might see in a movie where an asteroid might hit a planet, right? That's our vision of apocalyptic. But rather this, verse 6, there's a coming feast. That mountain feast harkens back to another such meal in Exodus chapter 24, where we read Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the Israelites. They beheld God and they ate and drank. The covenant meal here in that context is attended to by representatives of the nation, of the people. But here, that future feast, note the attendance at that feast that Isaiah talks about. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Not just a representation, but all peoples. Enjoying a meal whose quality and abundance is only constrained by the limits of language. That that's what God has in mind and what is coming in the future. But not just a coming feast. We read in verse 7 and verse 8, there'll be no more death. Destroyed and swallowed up. That's what becomes of death, according to the prophecy here. But even more so, the entire curse that has plagued creation from the beginning. 
that God will wipe the tears of each and every person, that the possibility of being a people in chains will be no more and never again. Quite simply, as J. Alec Moyer observes, on that day, covenant promises will have become covenant reality that will live into that place. Christian Bishop Basil of Caesarea, or you might know him as Basil the Great. Anybody go to school with Basil the Great? Of course you did. It's a long time ago. He said, here he says, the sorrows of death have compassed me, but there he has delivered my soul from death. Here the eyes pour forth tears because of trouble, but there no longer is there a tear to darken the eyes of those who are rejoicing in the contemplation of the beauty of the glory of God. What Basil essentially says, it's going to be quite different on that day. One day will one day be on that day, and we will rejoice. Verse 9 and following talks about that rejoicing. Rejoicing in God's salvation, God having effected our rescue, having made us a people, restored and brought us under God's rule and care. That's where this is all headed. That's where the future is, is holding for us. This is what God is up to. And so we shouldn't be surprised to hear Jesus liken the kingdom of heaven to a wedding banquet or a feast because that is what has come and what is coming. But what happens when the hearers reject the offer? What happens when those who are invited say, no thanks, not coming? I don't need that. What happens? Early in Matthew's gospel, we learn that with Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come near. We hear that in the first part of the gospel, chapters 3 and 4. But not everybody wants what Jesus is offering. They don't take him seriously. We hear that in the parable. Making light of the call. Some go back to attending to their day-to-day business. Still others abuse and even kill the messengers. That's like taking it up a notch. They prove themselves unworthy, is what verse 8 says. So what to do? Well, if it is surprising that some did not accept the call, what is even more surprising is the king's next move. Though perhaps not in light of his repeated attempts to put the call out. The king expands the guest list. The king doesn't give up, doesn't fold up the party, then say, that's it. I've had it with you. I'm out. In fact, there was one, one, one year when I was in Connecticut early on, uh, we were planning to have a, a Mexican feast. And we had bought a lot of food for the youth group. And people had always touted how back east it snows all the time and we know how to drive in snow. Everybody had SUVs. And like an inch of snow fell on the ground and it paralyzed the town. That was my introduction. I was like, What? Why'd you get, where are you guys at? And so we had all this food that was prepared. I mean, I had food for 30, but nobody was coming to dinner. So we invited some new friends over, and they sat down, and we ate way more Mexican food than you should in one sitting. And it was awesome. And now I have diabetes. (laughs) But the king here expands the guest list. If this is the kingdom of heaven, which we are told it is likened to, it looks like who might end up participating after all may come as a surprise. 
might even raise a few eyebrows. Know what it says in verse 10. The good and the bad are invited. The good and the bad. As though Isaiah's all peoples had somehow one time been lost in translation. That he actually meant all people. In Jesus' parable, the participating bunch are those who respond appropriately to the invitation. But then the story takes that curious turn in verse 11. That what happened part. That's verse 11. There's a scene in one of the Bill and Ted movies. You ever see the Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure? How many people have seen that film? Show yourself. All right, a few. The second one, Bogus Journey, there's a scene in which the pair, joined by the Grim Reaper, if you haven't seen it, this is going to be kind of odd when you hear this, are outside the pearly gates. And they're, they're in the wrong attire. They end up going up there to heaven, but they're in the wrong clothing. And so they steal some clothing. Because <laughs> they're just in earthly colors, and everybody else seems to be wearing white, so they steal some white clothing, and they put that on. And it's, it's badly put over the top of their colored clothing, so you can see they're still dressed. They snatch this heavenly clothing in order to fit in. It's a humorous scene, but it's not what's in view here. Instead, there's a metaphor here with clothing. Since the time of Augustine, there's been attempts to smooth out what seems to be a wrinkle here in the text. How could someone just recently called into a, a wedding be expected to have appropriate attire? And that's what Augustine and the bunch have tried to sort out. I mean, who's walking around regularly dressed like they just walked out of the men's warehouse? Right? With your tuxedo on or your wedding dress. Who does that? Who's just always dressed like that? So the burden of a, the attire has been shifted to the host to provide, and that's what Augustine and, and the folks have said. But we should be reminded here that parables are stories. They're not required to bend to conventional wisdom on the way to making an altogether different point. Instead, the point here is stated plainly in the final verse, in verse 14. Many are called, called to repent and participate in the kingdom, called to join the way of Jesus, but few are chosen. The idea being there that is respond appropriately to the call, who give the answer, participate in the way that the call demands. To be dressed wrongly for the wedding is a picture of the inappropriate response. And in case someone was still hung up on pedigree here, which happened quite a bit in the early church and still does today, commentator R.T. France clears that up when he observes, their chosenness does not depend on their racial origin, but on their response to God's summons and their readiness to give God his due. This principle for France applies both to the Old Testament audience and the New Testament audience as well. And if you wanted a picture of what it looks like to be called but not chosen, we could follow the line of Judas throughout the book of Matthew, who indeed is called. And you'll remember when Jesus is arrested, how he addresses Judas in that passage. He calls him friend. And you'll note that at the wedding feast here, the banquet, the king calls the one who is not dressed for the occasion, friend. There's a warning in all of this. One that Leon Morris observes when he writes, those who hear God's call and know of his grace must not think that a call is the same as a response. While many indeed hear the call, 
few are chosen. For Craig Keener, who sees a warning here as well, noting Matthew apparently uses the community's opponents to warn members of his own community not to be like these opponents that were to respond. There's a 2001 joint survey by the National Endowment of the Arts and the Recording Industry Association, which named Over the Rainbow, you know that song? You like that song, Over the Rainbow? As the greatest song of the 20th century. The greatest song of the 20th century. Now I know some of you right now are trying to figure out a song that's greater than that one, right? That You're calculating in your mind. You're saying, what happened to Stairway to Heaven? But Over the Rainbow, the greatest song of the 20th century, most remember it from the Wizard of Oz or from a beautiful version uh, sung by a Hawaiian musician. I have his name here, but I'm not even going to try. He mashes it together with What a Wonderful World, and it's awesome. It's an awesome rendition. Curiously, it almost didn't end up in the film. It almost got cut from Wizard of Oz. They thought it slowed the film down too much. But then someone demanded to be put in there or they were going to quit, and so they put it back in there. But whether it slows the film down or not, the song is a reminder that we moderns are longing for a better place. We're longing for a better world. We're longing for peace. We're longing for an end to hostilities. We're longing for that abundance that grace provides. We're longing for rest from our work in the toil of our everyday lives. We're longing for healing to the brokenness that we see in our families and our communities. We're longing for ultimate reconciliation. We're longing for people to tell the truth and to stand up for other people. We're longing for compassion and kindness and generosity and love and patience. We're longing for a world that only God can provide and a world that God is forming this world into in Jesus Christ. And in that space where we long for these things is where good news meets us. That's set before us as an abundant feast in Isaiah in an almost unimaginable rescue, a life that ends with more life and life after that. That just as our tears are wiped in Revelation 21.4, we hear in the very next verse that Jesus is making all things new. And our response, well, that's up to you. That's up to you, each one of us this morning. But Matthew calls us to this. Friends, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. May that be our response for each one of us this day and every day of our lives. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love on this day and for the way that your love finds expression in the words of the prophet who calls us to a place of imagination of a world that is of abundance, a world in which you are present, a world in which any veil that obscures our vision from seeing the one who loves us and has created us and calls us to new life, who gives us life, that that veil is gone. Lord, that you indeed are life and you give us life. And so we pray today, Lord, that you'd help us 
Help us with the meager offerings that we bring to know the abundance and the riches that you have and that you so liberally give. Help us be those people. Lord, help us be those people who respond to the call with appropriate words and actions that we might enjoy our own heart longings with the offer, the gift of grace that you give to us freely. In so doing, that we might know life in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.